Well, Psalm 53 is before us this evening. Uh, Let's open with a word of prayer. Father, we ask now that your word would be open, that we might give you the glory and live in light by the power of your spirit. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. To the choir master, according to Mahalata, a mascal of David. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there is, are any who understand, who seek after God. They've all fallen away. Together they've become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have those who work evil no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon God. There they are in great terror where there is no terror. For God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. You put them to shame, for God has rejected them. Oh, that the salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When God restores the fortunes of His people, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. It may come as a surprise to you, but this is not the only psalm with these words. Psalm 53 is a twin, a twin of Psalm 14. There are slight differences between the two. And to understand the uniqueness of Psalm 53, particularly in its placement in the canon, we have to start with Psalm 14 and then take a running jump. So turn back to Psalm 14. I won't take time to read all of it, but let me just highlight for you the fact that this psalm in substance is very similar to the other, though there are four differences, the last of which is very profound. Psalm 14 tells us about the fool who says there is no God. And so let us listen to this psalm as it is sung by the Messiah, a psalm concerning the life of man The atheist. It opens with the statement that man is a fool by his fallen nature. On earth, the struggle between man who denies God and and the Most High God in heaven continually takes place. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. Satan was the first liar, and his followers repeat his evil. And so all around us, when we hear the words, there is no God, there is no God, we are hearing an echo of something from the very Garden of Eden. Satan and his people fight against the Lord and against the people of the Lord. And the struggle goes all the way back to that first day when our first father and first mother found themselves faced with temptation, Faced with a lie, and God, in the wake of their disobedience, placed a curse upon Adam's disobedience. Satan was there, and he was the first atheist par excellence. 
And he still is until this day. No good, no good at all can come in your life by walking in his darkness. You see, the atheist is deluded. We see his folly. He thinks he insulates himself from God and from God's hand of judgment by his statement, his boasting of unbelief. There is no God. So there is no God watching me. So there's no God who will pay me back and hold me accountable. This is the atheistic delusion that is at the root of so much that we hear each day. On the contrary, God says that knowledge of Him is both inside us and all around us. We are made in His image, and so the two eyes that stare us back each morning in the mirror, those two eyes bear witness to us of the souls that we have and the life and character and attributes that we have that inescapably point back in some ways to God. Glory is declared in the heavens. And so there is no excuse for not knowing God. And there's no ground for this boast that there is no God except the twisted, sinful, willful rebellion of fallen man in his nature. There are, ultimately, Paul tells us, In Romans 1, no true, dispassionate, intellectual atheists. Only these kind of practical, rebellious little people described here in Psalm 14 and repeated again in Psalm 53. All of us have been affected by this. Not trusting in God, the atheists insist that we must trust in man. But if we use this conclusion of atheism as our detector then the whole screen lights up because all of humanity falls in its wake. Who is righteous in the world? No one is righteous in all the earth. We are all sons and daughters of our first father Adam and our first mother Eve. We too have partaken not only of the guilt of Adam's sin, but we have followed in his train, have we not? The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. And there is none who does good. If this weren't bad enough, the evidence continues in the psalm to mount against us. To the testimony of fools and the observation of men is now added God's perspective. The divine voice comes thundering into the chaotic, rebellious situation on earth. And we hear the Lord saying that we are all a nation and a race of fools. Verse 2, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. From the press box of heaven, God looks down upon the great bowl game of life. He looks down and knows and sees all. He knows you better than you know yourself. And what conclusion does He draw? That all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Verse 3, They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Yes, We are atheistic fools, fallen and sinful, 
each and every one. No one escapes his notice. Here we see the bad news, which frames and makes all the more glorious the good news of redemption and life forever in Jesus Christ our Lord. But what about Israel? Perhaps God is speaking of those pagan nations, those those rebellious people, the Canaanites, you know, those bad guys. Maybe they're the ones being referred to. Verse 4 settles that. They have no knowledge. All the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call on the name of the Lord. It's Jews and Gentiles both that are lost in their sin and misery. There is none who is righteous. No, not one. They do not call upon the name of the Lord. Even the likes of Aristotle and Plato fall short of the glory of God. But the sons of Israel are idolatrous too. Their fathers were idolatrous. They repeatedly fell to the same and worshipped. And so by his question, David gives no hope or shelter to any man, to any flesh, no matter how distinctive his pedigree. This is the universal nature of sin because of the universal extent of the fall. Because all of us descend from our first father Adam and our first mother Eve. We are one human flesh together. And so we stand before him broken, needy, and rebellious. And if that's not bad enough, we take one more level of descent into the pit. You see, it's it's that there's no neutrality. We don't stand neutral as we look out on the face of humanity. We are just like the atheist who denies that there is a God who reaches a hand out against the people of God. Rather than supporting good and encouraging it and aiding it by nature, all fallen men and women, each and every one of us, persecutes the people of God. The fool refuses to call upon God. They have no knowledge. They eat up my people. They call not upon the Lord. Uh, This is not a simple reference to prayer, but it includes that. David is envisioning the great worship of God in the tabernacle complex. God's people assembling before Him and lifting up holy hands to pray. But not the atheist, not the unbeliever, not the fool and sinner and who is stubborn in his rebellion. The spectacle of worship is offensive to them. You see, worship of the true God is awesome in its nature. Verse 5 says, There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. It's as if all the atheists are pushed against the wall and they're watching the spectacle of Old Testament worship take place and all the sacrifices and and the showbread and and the candles and and the incense and, and the courts that God has established for His people and they stand aghast and horrified by all that they see because it declares to them in physical and pictorial form that they are sinners in need of a Savior and that they will come under the hand of judgment if they do not trust and and worship from the heart and life the triune God. 
Oh, Palmer Robertson put it this way. He said, something about standing in the worship assembly sets the atheist a trembling. Not only trembling about the awesome God, but also trembling with anger as well as fear. You see, worship doesn't leave us unaffected. It strengthens hearts and encourages minds. Or it hardens. It even terrifies. Going to church never quite leaves you the same ever again. But why? What's so powerful about going to church? What's so powerful about being with the people of God? It's that God is there. That God abides among the assembled generations of the righteous. That He is there with us and in us. He's working powerfully by His Holy Spirit as His Word goes forth. He transforms us. He makes us new. And this evening, that should encourage you as you're sitting there by yourself in your place, as you're sitting with neighbors or friends next to you, as you're sitting on a family pew with your children lined up just in the proper order. It should encourage you that each and every one around you will not be the same, but God does a breathtaking kind of surgery in our hearts and minds as His Word is declared. He transforms us more and more into the image of Christ our Lord. And so the atheist ridicules the faith of the believer. The atheist says that he does not believe in God and does not worship God. And so God comments on him in verse 6 and says, You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge Oh, the proud fool boasts there is no God. And he derides the meek believer and his peers. But our confidence is found in the Lord. Faith given to us from heaven by God is to the meek believer what the shell is to the turtle. The believer takes his faith with him wherever he goes. God uses it to defend and protect And encourage him from his enemy. And God is the one who fights. God is the one who triumphs in the end. We have been trusting in the Lord for a long time. And so the psalmist is encouraging us not to even think about begin quitting now. Confidence of God's people is only in the Lord. Oh, that salvation for Israel, verse 7, would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of His people, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. And so we have confidence in Him and His salvation. Confidence in His Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Out of Zion, He has commanded that His Savior would come. He restores our fortunes and He causes us in heart and life to rejoice and to be glad. That is the song and message we hear in Psalm 14. But as we turn to the twin, we see four differences. Psalm 53 has a longer title with a funny word in the middle of it, which if we bore down carefully, has something of a sorrowful or bitter taste to it. It's a musical tone, a musical term, and therefore it's like striking a minor key on the keyboard. And that gets our attention. Verse 1 substitutes 
The word iniquity for the word deeds. And so there's a a sharper focus or intensity that wicked men's deeds are iniquity. And so we are more greatly faced with the reality of our sin by nature. In verse 3, the language of turned aside is replaced with falling away. Conceptually very similar, but a slight variation in order to again focus our thinking about the evil of sin in our lives. But in Psalm 53, it's verses 5 and 6 near the end of the psalm that really is fundamentally different. This is where the action is. What is different between these two? Well, in Psalm 53, we are explicitly told that the people of God are terrified when faced with atheistic evil all about them. Where they are, or there they are, in great terror, we read in verse 5. Verse or Psalm four or excuse me Psalm fourteen five states this fact, but Psalm fifty three five emphasizes the fact. There they are, the people of God, gathered together, and they're trembling with great terror as they are surrounded by atheistic enemies who would seek their undoing. But there's no need to be scared. Psalm 14 tells us that we shouldn't be scared because God is with us. But Psalm 53 bluntly says, there is no terror that we should fear. There they are, in great terror. Where? There is no terror. And so God here is highlighting the fact that the people of God facing opposition from the world find themselves troubled and terrified But there's no reason for you to be upset. There's no reason for you to shake in your boots. Rather, your enemies, which seek to oppress you and to oppress the people of God and to overthrow the Lord, God is one, the one who will deal with them. Psalm 14 shines the light on the enemy's mistreatment and oppression of God's poor, of his people who they look down on. But he says they will not triumph. God will protect His people. And God will be their refuge. And that's a great truth for us to embrace. But here in Psalm 53, as the song is sung again, and the words are slightly changed in this verse, we read, that the theory that God is our refuge now gives way to dramatic, practical action on God's part. God is not just one who will be with us as we face difficulty. God is the one who will fight for us. He will pull out His sword. He will defeat His and our enemies. God is depicted in the song by David as being one who is active in His power, manly, working to protect us, and not leaving us exposed Only with emotional sympathy. His strong arm acts for us and for our protection. Verse 5 says, There they are in great terror where there is no terror. For God 
scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. You put them to shame, for God has rejected them. The people of God, perhaps in Jerusalem, perhaps surrounded by their enemies, they don't just take emotional refuge in God. It's not just that God makes us feel better, that He sympathizes with us, that He can feel our pain. It's that God takes His sword in His hand and He defeats His and our enemies so that they will not harm us. There is no need for you to tremble. Oh, God will beat them. And He will accept you. He will, he will reject them in their oppression. And that is something that you and I need to remember tomorrow when we listen to the news, when we read the Drudge Report, when we turn on CNN, when you listen to one network or another, read one newspaper or another, I don't care which one, you find yourself trembling over what is happening in the world. It's like everything has gone crazy and there is danger in the next year. Well, the psalmist is here to tell you that where you feel terror, there is no terror. Because God will fight for you and He will defend and protect you and they shall not harm you that you are safe in Him. You see, the world we live in is full of fools. But the church is protected by the Most High God. Do not be afraid. I have overcome the world, Jesus tells you. My friend, you need to believe that this year. You need to believe that. And so my pastoral admonition is simple. On the authority of God in Psalm 53, I tell you, keep calm and trust in Christ, your God. Let us pray.